Welcome to the Q Law Pod, a deep dive into current issues shaping Canada's legal industry, brought to you by Queen's Faculty of Law. In this episode, we feature a recent talk with Justice Canada's former Chief General Counsel, Robert Frader, who presented as part of the 2023 McCarthy Tetro Lecture on Ethics and Professionalism. In his talk, The Two Michaels, The Donald, and The Tech Tycoon's Daughter, Litigation in the Minefield of USAV Meg, Frader takes the audience through the evolving role, conduct, and responsibilities of Crown Counsel in criminal proceedings. We hope you enjoy. If you're interested in hearing more, you can visit soundcloud.com slash queenslaw or stay up to date with the latest news by visiting law.queensu.ca slash news. Right. Uh, it's a delight for me to um, uh, welcome you to the McCarthy Tetro uh, Ethics and Professionalism Lecture. Uh, and I especially want to welcome our esteemed scholar and speaker. I call you a scholar. Yeah. Uh, because you are, I think, uh, Robert Frater. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging that uh, Queens is located within the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe Haudenosaunee peoples, and um, we want to pause and acknowledge the importance of the beautiful lands and waters around us for their Indigenous identities. And the fact that Kingston is located at a traditional meeting place for diverse peoples. Uh, including Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples um, who themselves have a long treaty relationship, often called the Treaty of One Dish and One Spoon. Um, I want to uh, start simply by acknowledging the importance of ethics and professionalism for everything that we do here in this law school. Um, it's an ethos, it's part of a broader value set that we commit ourselves to in the administration of justice. Ethics are self-directed in some respects. Um, they inform, as lawyers, our fiduciary relationships with clients, for example, how we assess conflicts of interest, how we uphold the importance of integrity, fairness, civility, uh, respect for diversity in, um, in the profession. And I hope beyond, to be honest. Uh, through this lecture series, uh, we've had an opportunity to hear from leading experts in the world of jurisprudence and the profession, um, and they have addressed significant uh, issues related to ethics and professionalism for us. Um, and today's uh, speaker, Rob Frader, uh, really has demonstrated exemplary service to uh, to Canadian society in all respects, and I'm going to leave. The formal introduction of Rob to Paul Steep um, is going to come up in a few minutes. And uh, before I do that, I just simply want to say how pleased we are and thankful we are um, that McCarthy Tetro has, uh, through its generosity, allowed this uh, lecture series in ethics and professionalism to take place. And it's part of a larger McCarthy's uh, ethics and professionalism program at Queen's, which starts on day one of law students' um, education here during orientation with an ethics panel. I'm hoping that the law students here will think back to that <laughs> first day of law school. Um, so thank you to uh, to the firm, McCarthy Tetro. Uh, and now let me introduce um, 
Wealth for many years a senior partner and now counsel at McCarthy's uh, Paul Steep. Uh, Paul is a graduate of this law school from 1980. Um, he was, well, still is, uh, a member of their litigation group, but was the senior partner um, within the litigation group at McCarthy's for many years. His practice uh, covers a very broad range of, of areas of law from commercial uh, litigation to securities to health law. Uh, and he's appeared in all levels of court in Ontario and, of course, the Supreme Court of Canada and regularly before uh, the Ontario Securities Commission. Uh, I also want to say that Paul is a member of our Dean's Council here, so a group of alumni that have uh, steadfastly supported the Dean over the years, and that means me. So I'm extremely grateful to Paul for his, um, on a personal level, for his support his wisdom and advice over some tricky uh, tricky years, to be honest, in the last little while. Um, so Paul is now going to introduce Rob. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Mark. I'm uh, grateful for those uh, kind words. And I'll just say that it's been uh, an honor to work with you on, on the Dean's Council. Uh, I'm very grateful to have the, to have the opportunity to do so. Uh, but let me turn to uh, the main event, which is Rob Brader. Uh, um, we're really honored at McCarthy's to be able to have a speaker of Rob's caliber uh, deliver this Mark McCarthy Tetro uh, lecture. As you know, Rob's graduate of the school in 1984, and it is without doubt when I say that he's brought uh, honor to this law school and his professional career since those days. Uh, he went to the Department of Justice in 1986, went to Ottawa in 1991, and became Chief General Counsel for the Department of Justice in 2016, held that position until he retired just recently in the fall of 2021. Rob has asked me to keep this introduction very short, and I'm going to do that. Then I took a look at his CV, so he appeared in the Supreme Court of Canada over 50 times, which is remarkable. He's appeared on constitutional, criminal, administrative, and competition law cases. When I looked through the list, I thought that it might uh, take me the better part of the hour and a half allotted for this lecture. I went through all of them. He's been on constitutional references for the Pennsylvania Securities Act uh, for the Senate. He's appeared in Canada versus Carter, Wholesale Travel, Milgard, and Regina versus Moran. Uh, for today, though, I want to emphasize Rob's reputation for fairness and professionalism, which everyone in the litigation community would recognize and know. He was one of Canada's leading advocates, but he always conducted his advocacy 
fairly and with integrity. In 2020, he was the Katzen Award winner for civility and professionalism, which is awarded annually by the Advocate Society. Queen's honored him with the Thomas Cromwell Distinguished Public Service Award in 2015. I just want to finish by saying one thing about the lecture, which I hope McCarthy's will continue to sponsor for many years uh, to come. Ethics is one of the most practical courses that a lawyer can study. I can tell you after 40 years of practice, ethical issues come up daily, weekly, monthly. You always have to have a framework to consider these issues and resolve them. So, Rob, over to you. Thanks. I don't know what's going to go first. Either the water will be spilling over my notes or the microphone is going to be stepped on at some point, but uh, we'll plow through. Uh, thanks, uh, Mark and Paul, for your uh, kind introductions, and particularly to McCarthy Tetro for sponsoring this series, which I uh, agree with Paul is of the utmost importance to all lawyers. Uh, the law school has had some outstanding speakers in this series, and I am humbled to have been asked uh, to speak to you today. So what I will be speaking to you about falls generally into the area of the role of the Attorney General in criminal litigation, which is a subject uh, about which there has been much written, uh, but not always by people who have to actually apply the principles in practice. And my general thesis is that some of what is said about that role is either so vague as to be not particularly helpful as a guide to professional conduct in specific situations, not entirely true, or at the very least in need of a modern understanding. What I'm going to try and do that is perhaps a little different from what others have previously done is to look at how ethical precepts arise and get addressed in an actual case. So I'm going to be looking primarily through the lens of my involvement in the Kathy Mung extradition case, where I was lead counsel for the Crown uh, for more than two years before the deal that whisked her back to China and the two Michaels home to Canada. I say primarily because uh, I will be using some other examples uh, to make my points. And for those who, of you who may be really keen on this subject matter, there'll be a written version that will be fully adorned with many footnotes and you can check my references uh, if need be. So apart from the fact that I was involved in the Hmong case, I think uh, it's a useful lens because it was a hard case. And not only may hard cases lead to bad law, they may also lead to head-scratching ethical and professional challenges. Prior to the Hmong litigation, my experience had usually been that the higher the stakes in litigation, the more hard fought it was, and the greater the likelihood that accusations would fly that someone was behaving unprofessionally. 
Now, Justice Moldaver famously said that litigation is not a tea party. But while the Mung case uh, sometimes approached uh, what I would call the barroom brawl end of the spectrum on hard-fought litigation, at no point was it conducted unprofessionally. A little testy sometimes, in and out of court to be sure, but honorably conducted on both sides at all times. Nevertheless, uh, there were numerous ethical professional challenges to address in the course of that litigation. For the purposes of my talk, I'm going to assume that you have at least a little bit of knowledge about the Mung case. Uh, but for those of you with only slight familiarity, let me give you the shortest of refreshers. Ms. Mung was arrested in transit in December 2018 at the Vancouver International Airport on an extradition warrant. She was wanted by the United States on fraud charges. The essence of the allegation uh, was that Meng, as chief financial officer for Huawei, the electronics company, made false statements to a representative of the HSBC bank in a Hong Kong tea room in 2013. The false statements concerned Huawei's relationship with a company controlled by Huawei that was doing business with Iran, contrary to US sanctions. The allegation uh, was that the false statements reassured HSBC and other bankers who continued to do business with Huawei, and thus they also ran into trouble with US regulators. Not the most complex fraud in the world, uh, not one that had the most victims, nor was it even one with particularly sympathetic victims. So that uh, perhaps is a bit of a, a long-winded introduction such that some of you are sitting there wondering when he's ever going to get to the point. Uh, that time is now. So I am going to begin at the beginning. The touchstone for ethical conduct by Crown Counsel in criminal cases is the famous statement by Supreme Court of Canada Justice Rand in the case of Boucher versus the Queen. And it goes like this. It cannot be overemphasized that the purpose of a criminal prosecution is not to obtain a conviction. It is to lay before a jury what the Crown considers to be credible evidence relevant to what is alleged to be a crime. Counsel have a duty to see that all available legal proof of the facts is presented. It should be done firmly and pressed to its legitimate strength, but it also must be done fairly. The role of prosecutor excludes any notion of winning or losing. His function is a matter of public duty than which in civil life there can be no, none charged with greater personal responsibility. It is to be efficiently performed with an ingrained sense of the dignity, the seriousness, and the justice, justness of judicial proceedings. That statement by Justice Rand has been repeated hundreds of times in Canadian decisions and repeated by many foreign courts. It underscores that Crown Council must be committed to the fairness of the process, not focused on the achievement of a particular result. Or, as Madam Justice Sharon expressed it, 
The Crown's undivided loyalty is to the proper administration of justice. Now, at the level of 10,000 feet, these statements are fine. In practice, they've led to other proposition or claims about uh, what the Bouchevian prosecutor ought to do that are more problematic. So the bulk of my talk is looking at a few of those uh, propositions, five to be exact. Uh, the first one is this, and it is that the Crown has no client. Now, this is a different way of underscoring the duty of impartiality emphasized by Justices Rand and Sharon. It is literally true in criminal proceedings, but it is a proposition that is ever so difficult to apply in a case like mine. Let me give you three examples. First, the elephant in the room throughout the Hmong proceedings was the situation of the two Michaels, Mr. Michael Spaver and Mr. Michael Kovrig. They were arrested and held in small prison cells in China without even having been charged for some time, severely restricted in their communications with the outside world, subjected to unfair trials, and all it appeared as a result of Ms. Mung's arrest. Mr. Spaver and Mr. Kovrig were not actually our clients, to be sure, but their interests were under consideration in everything that we did, such as trying to move the proceedings along as quickly as possible in a world where new defense motions were coming forth uh, as if from the head of uh, Medusa, dealing with one just seemed to lead to two more. Mr. Spavers and Mr. Kovrig's dire circumstances led us to reflect on our own legal system at times. For example, Ms. Mung was on bail throughout the proceedings on terms that allowed her to live in one of two uh, Tony uh, Vancouver properties able to go out to restaurants with friends or to have private shopping excursions to hold Renfrew. She eventually tired of certain restrictions like being followed by a team of private security personnel. So she exercised her right to a bail review, something that drove us crazy. When we thought of the comparative equities of her situation, and those of Mr. Spaver and Mr. Kovrig. Now, of course we can uh, or, or should take pride, I suppose, in the fairness of the process our legal system provides. Uh, but that, when you're in the shoes I was in, does not stop you from feeling that it seems incongruous that we provide five-star process when others don't even get a single star. Second, within the federal government, there, was, there were a very broad range of interests in this litigation. Global affairs, obviously. The Canadian Border Service Agency, whose actions in dealing with Ms. Mung 
were subject to minute dissection in charter motions and led to highly stressful testimony for the individuals involved. Ditto for the, the RCMP's arresting officers. CSIS too had an interest, and I'm not revealing state secrets here. You can look up the federal court litigation involving CSIS uh, that took place as part of this case. There were many, many interests within government and maybe some people who may have been holding out hope that we would lose some motion to make the whole thing go away. Third, beyond the federal government, we were in regular contact with US prosecutors and the actions of the US were also part of this litigation. So one of the many abusive process allegations we faced was uh, that were brought by the defense team concerned statements made by former President Donald Trump that allegedly suggested he might be willing to deal the Hmong extradition uh, for a treaty with China on trade. In a sense, the United States as the requesting country was our client too. So we were in the position of defending its head of state's colorful statements. Uh, we had to think of respectful ways of describing his actions. We certainly could have caused an international incident if we'd chosen to defend this motion by saying the statements were unbelievable and calling evidence as to his reputation for veracity. So while we had no one who uh, might technically be viewed as a client, we certainly had no shortage of individuals or groups with client-like interests, all of them looking at us to be their lawyer. And it caused me to reflect on what it means uh, to have no client. The, the, as the crown has no client. Well, at the same time, uh, the reality was all of these people are looking at this case from their corner of it and are counting on you to ensure that their perspective and their interests get some measure of justice. And I came to the conclusion that the true appreciation of my role involved ensuring appropriate voice was given to their interests, not to the exclusion of other considerations, but in a way that recognized that justice in this case was neither blind nor deaf to their significant interests. As we moved through the proceedings, my colleagues and I tried to ensure that our side chose its words very carefully. When we spoke in court in this case, we always knew that our words were going to be parsed by multiple audiences. For those who were looking upon us as their lawyer, we tried to speak to them. We hoped uh, we would allow them to be heard. Now, my second example uh, relates to the independence of prosecutorial decision-making. So one of the other bedrock principles of prosecutorial decision-making 
Um, and by that, I mean, other than the strict obedience to Boucher, is the principle of independence in prosecutorial decision-making. Strictly speaking, this principle is about the exercise of the decision to prosecute, that is to charge. Charging decisions, who gets charged for what offenses, must not be made in a partisan way. Why does this principle exist? Well, in a country that claims to be governed by the rule of law, you do not want the politicians in charge of deciding who gets prosecuted because that may not go well for their political opponents. This principle is generally known as the Shawcross principle. First enunciated in 1951 in the UK Parliament by then Attorney General Sir Hartley Shawcross, a name that's surely straight out of Dickens. The Shawcross principle, you might recall, had a brief moment of fame in Canadian politics as the SNC-Lavalin affair played out in late 2018 and 2019, in which uh, former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould described feeling pressured by the Prime Minister's office over a criminal case. Now, post-SNC-Lavalin, and part of, uh, part of Hmong was at, going on at the same time, uh, there was a much greater appreciation of the Shawcross principle among senior government officials. As I told you before, there was intense interest in the case all over the government. I went to lots of long meetings with lots of high officials, uh, but to a person, I think they were terrified of saying anything that might be perceived as telling me what to do. These officials uh, seem to be well acquainted with Justice Rand as well, uh, because I would get questions that went along the lines of, uh, Mr. Frater, I know the Crown neither wins nor loses, but are you going to win? <laughs> as I said before, I think there were some hopes in some places that we would lose and lose quickly. And further, one of the interesting things about our extradition system is that it gives distinct roles to the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice, who are, in fact, the same person in our federal justice system. What this means is that counsel for the Attorney General conducts the committal proceedings where a judge decides uh, whether there is a case to answer, and the Minister of Justice handles the surrender proceedings where the minister decides if the judge orders committal whether to surrender the person to the requesting country. What this tends to mean, and did mean in this case, was that the Attorney General did not play an active role in the proceedings, leaving matters to the Deputy Attorney General, who is a member of the public service. And this meant that litigation decision-making was concentrated in very few hands, surprising perhaps for a case with such wide-scale ramifications. Our team sometimes felt that we were on a very small island. It's important to realize that while inside government, people were very re reluctant 
to create a hint of a whiff of a trace of telling our team what to do, Shawcross does not demand that prosecutors be hermetically sealed from the rest of government. If you doubt that, you should read a fascinating case uh, from the House of Lords, as they then were, called Corner House Research. In that case, the director of the Serious Fraud Office had to decide whether to continue an investigation involving members of the Saudi Arabian government. Both the Prime Minister and the British Ambassador weighed in with the director and the Ambassador claiming that British lives on British streets were at risk. The director decided, after consulting with those uh, people, uh, and he decided not to charge. And his decision was judicially reviewed, the House of Lords ultimately holding that the director was entitled to listen to his colleagues and make a decision that reflected their view of what the public interest demanded. So in our case, while we were busy being holier than the Pope inside government when it came to applying the Shawcross Creed, outsiders, including several who had formerly been insiders, were more than willing to fill the void with their own advice, advice that was given both in public and by correspondence to the Attorney General that was then made public. Uh, but as much as our team may have benefited from advice, seldom helps to get advice from people who really don't know all the facts. My third example uh, is about the Attorney General as guardian of the public interest. Now, Shawcross tells us that attorney, uh, the Attorney General must not act in a partisan way but must instead be governed by what the public uh, interest demands. All of the various prosecution agencies in Canada uh, have charging policies that demand fidelity to the public interest uh, and give lists of public interest factors um, that may justify prosecution, thus helping ensure that partisan or irrelevant considerations play no role in prosecutions. All very sensible stuff. However, for a long time, courts have referred to the Attorney General as the guardian of the public interest. A much vaguer notion in that it can be employed in a variety of contexts to describe things, usually that the, the court thinks the Attorney General ought to be doing. Now, in my view, it is not a particularly helpful phrase in litigation, since the Attorney General can scarcely claim uh, to be the sole guardian of the public interest. When it comes to litigation in the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, the phrase borders on incoherence, since in a case like uh, the references on greenhouse gas pricing, attorneys general from various jurisdictions took starkly different positions on what the public interest uh, demands in tackling climate change. Intervening groups who are not attorneys general can also claim with some justification to be guardians of the public interest, 
since their presence is due to their ability to voice public interest concerns that may not be heard if they were not allowed to intervene. There is, uh, in my view, however, a somewhat more modern phrase that better captures the ground that guardians of the public or guardian of the public interest was probably meant to capture. And that phrase is guardian of the rule of law. Now, I have to admit that defining what is meant by the term uh, the rule of law is itself somewhat vague and open to disputation. And I suppose I'm in the place where it would be disputed uh, uh, regularly. But the phrase itself is, uh, in my view, a, a much better description of what counsel litigating on behalf of the attorney general actually do. So litigation work in the, in the government might be compared to an iceberg. 90% of it is unseen by the public eye. In addition to uh, the role as the government's litigator, the attorney general has a legal advisory role, which may involve advising the government whether its proposed actions are constitutional, whether positions it would like to take in court are objectively reasonable and legally defensible, and whether there are options open to the government other than uh, a fleeting desire for bare knuckle litigation. Let me give you an example of how this guardian of the rule of law principle played out in the Hmong case. And I, I go back to my example of the comments made by former President Trump. Essentially the allegation of the defense was that the comments reflected a corrupt motive of the prosecution. Uh, the case was not about the legitimate prosecution of a crime, but an attempt to use prosecution as a lever to advance foreign policy objectives. Any proper understanding of the rule of law forbids prosecution being used for such purposes. Now, if you are defending a claim uh, that your client's um, actions compromise the rule of law, the only response you can make that has any sort of uh, chance of being accepted is to demonstrate that the rule of law has not been compromised, which fortunately we were able to do because the statements of the former president were at best ambiguous and the statements of those actually running the prosecution were crystal clear about the necessary division between politics and law. The US Justice Department may not be cognizant of Sir Hartley's famous speech, but its practitioners are as keenly attuned to the principle as we are. My fourth example concerns the ethical standards of Crown Council. Now, ever since I was a, uh, a baby crown, I've heard it said that courts hold Crown Counsel to a higher standard than other lawyers. If this were just some sort of code for complying with Boucher or an invitation to remind Crown Counsel that they are singled out for special obligations in professional codes of conduct, it's harmless enough. 
But what it means is not entirely clear. And it still gets said in various ways. What bothers me about it is the implicit comparison invited by the word higher. It must be a comparison to criminal defense lawyers. But do we actually expect uh, defense lawyers to behave, well, badly? Zealous defense of a client's interests does not require any sort of questionable behavior and acquiring a reputation as a counsel of questionable behavior certainly does not do any client any favors. In Hmong, the defense mounted as vigorous a defense as could be imagined. But as I said to you at the outset, uh, providing that defense involved no questionable behavior at all. In my experience, the most effective defense counsel are those whose standards of professionalism and ethics are equal to those of Crown Counsel. And I would be surprised if you could find a single judge who disagrees with that statement. Now, fortunately, I think this assertion is made less frequently these days. And I think that perhaps we have Madam Justice Sharon of the Supreme Court to thank for that. I, you'll recall I, I previously cited to you her statement from the McNeil decision about the Crown's undivided loyalty to the administration of justice, but let's look at the surrounding words because the context is important here. And she said, the Crown is not an ordinary litigant. As a minister of justice, the Crown's undivided loyalty is to the proper administration of justice. As a guide to action, the statement, the crown is not an ordinary litigant, has much to recommend it over the traditional higher standard statement, because it captures, I think, an important nuance. It is not about you. It is about the position that you hold. You carry no brief for injustice. If you know of information that would harm your case and help your opponents, you turn it over. There is case law contrary uh, to your position. Judge is entitled to see it. The worst possible result for Crown Counsel in a criminal case is the conviction of the factually innocent. In a civil case, it may be the denial of a fair hearing. Now, I'm not saying that it's not important to have high personal standards. But the motivating principle is better expressed as the importance of understanding and doing what the office that you hold demands. My fifth and last example is about speaking in public about a case. Rules of professional conduct have long demanded that statements uh, be made in public excuse me, that no statements be made in public that would materially prejudice a person's right to a fair hearing. The same rule, the very same rule, however, also says that it is important that the public, including the media, be informed about cases before courts and tribunals. Now, for most of my career, the Crown, uh, with the Crown, no balance was struck between those competing considerations. 
The only thing that Crown Council ever said to the press was no comment. But these days, the balance is struck in quite a different way. In the Mung case, the amount of time we as council spent with communications people fashioning public statements was remarkable, onerous even. And I think that is as it should be. It is quite consistent with a modern Crown's professional obligation. For many people who are simply observers of the justice system, their view of the administration of just, justice will be shaped by cases that are prominently displayed for all to see, especially if they are in the public eye over an extended period. For, counsel, uh, for Crown Council not to answer questions about the nature of the proceedings and to some extent about their own actions risks weakening respect for the administration of justice. These days, uh, you see the Crown doing a lot more public explaining in ways they never used to because they cannot expect the deference that perhaps once existed. For example, explaining why someone was not charged or why charges were withdrawn can become a critical piece of public speaking if you want the public to have confidence in the administration of justice. The speaker may usually be a, a government spokesperson or even a press release, but it is not wrong for Crown Council to be that person. And I believe the importance of making public statements increases with lengthy litigation. In Hmong, representatives of Hmong or people sympathetic to her position spoke out often. Uh, a journalist's best friend is an ostensibly knowledgeable individual with a ready comment. For the Crown to respond to journalists by saying, matters under litigation, I have nothing to say, or uh, I will wait until the end of the litigation to speak, ignores the nature of the modern world, where information and misinformation flows freely. Failure or, uh, to even attempt public explanations just leaves more space for misinformation to flourish and suspicions of impropriety to grow. Silence creates the risk that people will form negative impressions of the administration of justice. Crown Council are being loyal to the administration of justice, as Justice Sharon urges, contributing to the public dialogue about ongoing criminal litigation may enhance respect for the justice system. Um, so that's basically it. In conclusion, I'm not sure there is any real conclusion to this talk. I'm generally not fond of conclusions uh, that simply repeat something I already said. Um, I hope that uh, the talk contributed to your understanding of the modern role of Crown Council. And even if you only have passing interest in that line of work and the theory that animates it, I hope that maybe you see in my examples something of an inspiration to reflect on and where necessary challenge accepted wisdom wherever you encounter it. So 
uh, I'm famous for being uh, brief. Um, one of the nicest things that was said about me in the Hmong case was by a reporter after we made submissions on an early motion. And uh, he wrote in his article, Mr. Freighter's submissions were brief and occasionally witty. And I've decided that on my headstone, I want that as my epithet. So I'm happy to uh, take questions from the audience here or online as uh, moderated by uh, Mark. Yes, please, questions. Uh, yeah, I've, I've often wondered, and I'm, no, I'm not the first to wonder this, but uh, whether the roles of, whether there be any benefit to the roles of Minister of Justice or Attorney General being divided among two persons, the former being something partisan from within the government and the, the latter being something of a nonpartisan uh, role. And I've often wondered that and, and not had very much opportunity to speak to many experts about it. I, I was curious to know what your thoughts might be on that. Right, so it's been debated forever at the federal level. Yep. I'm not sure if the Zoom mic picks up questions. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So um, I, don't oh, know I have to. I have to go, go down. Uh, just repeating. <laughs> okay, so the the questioner has asked me uh, whether um, we should consider separating the roles of uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General. And my response to that is that exists at the federal level in Canada, uh, doesn't always exist at the provincial level in Canada, and doesn't exist uh, many places abroad. So in Britain, for example, um, the Attorney General has traditionally sat outside of cabinet. Uh, these days, my understanding is they get invited to cabinet a lot, but they have that, um, the system has always thought that that role goes to someone with particular talents who doesn't need to be in cabinet, but gets a prominent role in consulting cabinet. So there are many other ways of uh, doing it. We've, uh, we've done it uh, that way for a long time, and maybe it's inertia more than anything else, uh, but there are pros and cons to to uh, having the, the the two rules in uh, uh, one hand or one set of hands. Hi there, I'm Lisa Kerr. I teach criminal law here. And the question I wanted to raise was how training and promotion occurs within your office. And it's, it's sort of a question about how you ensure that the values described in your lecture are reproduced. Um, so if the goal of the Crown is not to secure a conviction, not to win or lose, how does that work success? And I ask partly because I know that in some U.S. jurisdictions, maybe not the federal prosecutors, but in many U.S. states, you know, they're far more politicized, subject to election. And I think the result is that obtaining and sustaining convictions and long sentences it does become their central preoccupation. So, so what's the alternative to that metric of success? Well, I think it, it, it's what it, uh, sorry, uh, I've forgotten that I have to replace. So Professor Kerr has asked the question uh, 
how do we how do we uh, have a culture for prosecutors that doesn't depend on winning and losing, uh, as it may in um, a U.S. system where the chief prosecutor might be elected. Um, so I, I would say that what has changed over my time in, um, in the government is there is much more of a commitment to training and good training than there ever was before. So prosecutors get uh, a lot more training about uh, advocacy skills, um, professionalism issues, um, training uh, uh, about racism, indigenous issues. Uh, it, and the law societies are on this too, because everyone has to have a certain number of hours of training every year. Uh, but within government, at least the governments that I'm familiar with, the commitment has been ramped up over time uh, to try and, uh, I would say, um, these days, much more to examine your own biases, to admit that you've got a problem, uh, because that is uh, uh, part of the issue. So the other thing we have in Canada is a long history of examination of wrongful convictions. And, uh, you know, if you read the reports on why wrongful convictions occur, um, the usual suspects always come back. And among them are errors by prosecutors who can be um, subject to... Um, uh, you know, uh, biases, or I'm, I'm missing the term, uh, tunnel vision, yes, thanks, uh, tunnel vision. Uh, because when you work on something uh, um, for a long time, you come to believe it. So one of the first cases I did when I came to Ottawa was the Milgard reference, um, which was an interesting case because like you could, in retrospect, uh, you could see all these biases playing out. And um, you, you come to understand how hard it is uh, to step back from, you know, someone presenting you with a case that seems to point to one individual as having done the crime. And uh, some of the remarkable things that went on in that case um, showed the way people think in going through their, their lives, because many of the witnesses uh, would look at things that David Milgard did and interpret it in the most negative light possible because they believed that he was the sort of person that could do that sort of crime. And um, if you think about the way you go through the world uh, and you hear of someone doing something, you, you know, you will often say to yourself, yeah, I knew they, they, they could do that sort of thing uh, without actually knowing. And in criminal law, 
there's got to be proof that you did that. But when, um, like, uh, David Milgard, for instance, uh, was in a hotel room and started um, punching a punching a, a pillow in a very odd way, but he, he was a, a kind of an odd guy. The people reporting on that incident, which happens shortly after the uh, the murder, like are thinking that that's evidence of someone who is capable of murder. Uh, well, you know, we uh, at the time, you know, that's what they're thinking. But uh, you've got to be able to step back and uh, say, no, 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 like, give me, give me some hard evidence of something. And am I, you know, imposing my values on, on what I'm uh, being, being uh, fed by the police, for instance? Anyway, that's kind of long. If I've answered it, I'll move on. Uh, hi, I'm Alvin Cho. I teach public law and admin law here. In fact, uh, that, that answer brings me on quite neatly onto my question, which is I recently taught May and Ferndale Institution, where the Supreme Court took the view that various government officials have been essentially concealing some pretty important information. In that case, it was the um, weighting factors for an algorithmic risk assessment. So what do you do when those instructing you are hiding more? Uh, okay, so, uh, so let me repeat Professor Chung's question, which uh, is based on the case, uh, the Supreme Court case of May and Ferndale, uh, a correctional law case where uh, federal officials were found to have concealed uh, relevant information. Is that fair? Okay, so I would say that um, my experience throughout my career is that um, public officials generally are well-motivated um and they they want to do the right thing um but not everyone is equal in terms of what they're capable of doing and i i don't uh i don't think personally i've had examples of people trying to withhold information from me um of course if they were successful i wouldn't know uh, um, but um, as a lawyer, one of the things you're good at is pushing back. Like lawyers are really good at asking the questions. Uh, they're less good at answering the questions when they're called on. But um, you've got to be a lawyer with those clients sometimes and say, okay, you've told me A, B, and C. I want to know, is there a D, E, and F? Uh, and I want to know if there isn't a D, and E, and F, is that because you haven't looked for it yet? Um, and 
that sort of back and forth uh, goes on with the police uh, a lot because, um, you know, prosecutors get prosecution briefs prepared by the um, police, which many are of middling quality. And uh, you get better as you get more experienced about knowing what questions to ask um, to try and get to the bottom of what you haven't been told. There's a question uh, from someone online. I'll yes. just read it out. What recourse is available to the AG where flagrant, flagrant impropriety has been alleged and is likely to be found? Are there actions they can take uh, while an application for judicial reviews before the courts, for example, but before the case is heard to make sure that the likely decision is not issued or does not become public and they settle with the complainant or anything else. That's sort of clear? Uh, yes, it's clear, but there's a whole lot of stuff in there. Um, so, as I said uh, about um, litigation being like an iceberg, a lot of what goes on uh, before cases get to court are weeding out of cases. Um, now, this one, this question, um, I'm not sure whether the questioner is trying to get at the recent controversy over non-disclosure agreements. Um, but, um, you know, my view is uh, that on, on matters that are of important public interest, it's time to be more transparent about what has gone on. So if there's a settlement, uh, and settlements, uh, Paul's probably better uh, suited to speak to this than I am. And part of settlements is often to try and uh, contain the damage on both sides so that no one is saying anything. Uh, it's a little different for the government because there is a public confidence issue. Um, but, so I, I think there's two parts to this question. Is there a way of, uh, of punishing bad conduct? Yes, there's always a way of punishing bad conduct. There's uh, civil service repercussions. There's career uh, career limiting uh, uh, results to some cases if people have uh, misbehaved. Uh, and from a lawyer's perspective, there is the pulling of the case. So, you know, lots of cases are pulled because um, there is a feeling that there is no reasonable argument that can be made to defend government action. Um, you know, that is not uncommon in both in criminal and civil. Um, so, you know, when uh, part of our, our job as lawyers for the Attorney General are to try and persuade the government to come around to the view uh, that litigation is the worst of all possible options given the set of facts. <laughs> Um, so, I guess the question when you were talking about the role of 
of the attorney that only spends work in the public interest. And then we switched out a little bit and said to safeguard the rule of law. When you make that switch, is that broadening the role of the attorney general or is it narrowing? Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> As am I. As am I. Right. So the questioner's uh, question is about uh, the part of my talk where I was talking about the difference, perhaps, between the public interest and or the, the attorney general's role in defending the public interest as opposed to defending the rule of law. Uh, so the point I was uh, trying to make was it, not that it is wrong to describe what the attorney general is doing as being a guardian of the public interest. What I say is a better description of the actual role that's being played is as a guardian of the rule of law. So uh, this come, uh, what I'm, the, the context in which I'm speaking really is of uh, as, as a lawyer for the government, um, what is it that you're trying to do? And um, you're trying very often to persuade the government uh, that here's what uh, the law demands. Yes, you want to do this. Uh, you've got this idea for a bill that will do X. Um, the fact is that all of the uh, law that I can muster on this says that the chances of defending the constitutionality of that uh, bill are pretty much zero. Uh, so uh, that is advice that many governments don't want to hear, uh, but that's your job is, is to tell them that, you know, either you can't do it at all, or more often, the thing is, if what you're really trying to do is A, uh, there's a different way of doing A that at least gives you a, a reasonable argument that A is not unconstitutional. If you want to describe it as B, you're in tough. Um, so that, I would say, is defending the rule of law because you don't want governments uh, behaving unconstitutionally. Can I just follow up and ask yeah. a question myself? Um, so I was quite reassured to hear that uh, during um, litigating the, the Wang case, you had such freedom. Um, you might have felt like you were on an island, <laughs> but that the government was not there to tell you how to conduct the case. Um, and maybe that's true of criminal law cases generally. I'm just interested in terms of your own experience uh, on the civil side. I mean, you've just talked a little bit about offering independent advice, but the, as we all know, uh, how to interpret the law is something that can be fairly flexible. Um, and how much freedom do you have from politics in a, in a big constitutional case where, uh, where the political masters want a, a particular um, argument presented. And I'm thinking in particular as an example of cases involving Aboriginal rights, 
and the competing interest that the Crown may have a, some kind of fiduciary obligation to a First Nation, um, which adds a, a, an added layer of complexity in terms of the independence that that you as a lawyer have in framing arguments before the court. Right. Oh, okay. So um, I, you start from a different place in civil uh, proceedings because uh, the attorney general is not independent in conducting uh, civil litigation. The attorney general can take instructions and does take instructions. The problem um, more from the sort of cases that I did, um, particularly in in Indigenous cases, is the variety of interests that may occur, um, at least in the federal sphere. So a lot of Indigenous cases come up over um, resources, for instance. So, um, you know, there there is uh, an industry in interest in that. Industry Canada, or whatever they're called now, uh, wants to develop something. Uh, the environmental people have a different interest. And uh, Indigenous uh, Affairs has a different interest. And the, 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 the problem generally um, in that sort of litigation for the lawyer is trying to be the person that reconciles all those interests. And uh, so, so you're, you're, there's a constant tug of war uh, within the government where you're trying to get instructions from someone, but each of those three departments, uh, in the example I'm using, all think they should be the instructing uh, person. And sometimes um, those things are very hard to do. And the lawyer ends up being the one that that comes up with the compromise, and um, and sometimes there is no compromise, right? Like, uh, and I think that this is where you're going. Like, if there's a case that involves a clear indigenous right that you can't uh, you can't argue around to get to some other uh, solution that the government might hope for. You've got to tell the, the government that uh, that's that's the situation that they're in. So, you know, being the bearer of bad news is uh, a role that you get used to in that line of work. A few more questions online. Maybe I'll go to the online folks. Yeah. Okay. Um, how can we receive Rob Crater's written essay? <laughs> we'll get that too. Uh, I should read these first before reading them out loud, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what would be your advice to the federal government if asked about preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause? <laughs> Is there a case to be made for disallowance? <laughs> um, okay, so. Um, Remember, you no longer work. Yes, I, I, well, it, 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 it's interesting that you say that, Mark, because uh, there are rules 
about what you can say about things that you might have been involved in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, even stronger rules, because uh, I did litigation on behalf of CSIS that I would have to take to the grave. So um, what, uh, what would I tell the government uh, about, well, this, the question sort of assumes that I have never said anything uh, about that when I was working for the government. Um, so I'm limited in what I can say, but generally speaking, um, and this is the thing, uh, this is why there's so many different types of lawyers, there are always arguments to be made. Like the number of cases um, that I was involved in where I had to say to a client, is there nothing that can be said in favor of that proposition is, is very small indeed, because um, you do such a good job of teaching us at law schools, Mark, uh, that creativity is, um, leads you to come up with an argument that um, may seem precluded by the text of, of uh, documents, including the Constitution. So have I talked around that for long enough? <laughs> <laughs> we don't mind so much about that. We have unwritten principles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some people think they do more work than others, I think, Mark. Yes, um, why don't you draw the line between undue political influence and helpful discussions with colleagues in other departments about what the public interest requires? Yeah, so the question is, how do you draw the line between uh, deciding something is undue influence uh, and uh, healthy discussion, let's say? So, uh, the bright line for that is uh, the person who is not the prosecutor uh, saying, you shall do X. Can't do that. Um, on the other hand, uh, the savvy person uh, will say, could we get together for a chat uh, so I can share some thoughts I have on this subject? And, uh, you know, I'll leave them with you for what they're worth. Um, now, if that person is the prime minister, uh, that's different than if it's, you know, uh, someone working in a department's minister's office. So uh, you really should read that corner house research case uh, that uh, I gave you because uh, in, in that case, like you had the prime minister weighing in directly, uh, like the, the case was about kickbacks to uh, princes. And the idea was uh, there would be some sort of violent reaction if the charges were laid. Uh, and the, the, you know, the, uh, the quotation I read to you from the ambassador was British lives uh, are at risk on British soil. Um, 
which is set in a way, you know, to try and get maximum impact. I'm just saying, I'm just saying uh, this is uh, what may happen here. Prime Minister is sort of saying the similar things in a different way. Um, and you, you have a person, the director of the serious fraud office, who has to take all of that in. I would say you're more likely to be persuaded by the prime minister than perhaps another person in the uh, government. Uh, you might give more deference to the British ambassador if they're a person of long standing and high standing. Um, but the, the, the safeguard in the system ultimately is that the director has to be a person of integrity. Uh, because if they're not, uh, and they're simply a careerist uh, who says, you know, my chances for the bench are going to be severely diminished here if I'm not listening to the uh, government, well, uh, the system breaks down. All of the, uh, the, the theory that I've given you tends to break down if the office holder uh, is not a person of the utmost integrity. And how do you assure that? Uh, it's hard, but, uh, you know, when you see it in action, uh, it's reassuring uh, that there are such people around. Now, the, the, um, what happened in Corner House, like the decision not to prosecute was judicially reviewed at the lower levels. Um, Corner House had been, which was a public interest group, had been successful. They said uh, the courts in those uh, at the lower levels said, "No, no, like the, that 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 is a person who has bent to politics. Uh, you can't do that." And uh, well, there's certainly the appearance of that uh, on that record. The the House of Lords took a different view, but uh, again, like it comes back to, okay, um, you know, the, the director could be um, justifiably feel that these are people with a lot more expertise in the area than I have, and I've got to give a lot of weight to what they say, because I have no independent means of verifying the truth of what they're saying. Uh, so, you know, that's the difficulty of the way the system operates. Um, hi, I just have a kind of practical question about how it is you prepare for trial. Um, I was also wondering if there is a departmental uh, preparation strategy, if you do sort of uh, off trial, if you practice your role, so much in the same mirror in the washroom. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, that has changed over time, and in the um, with the Attorney General of Canada, no one goes to the Supreme Court without having done at least one practice moot. Uh, personally, I would do up to three, uh, so that um, what I like to do, um, and uh, your your professor sitting two over from you can discuss this with you because he was involved in one of them with me. Uh, but I like to do a moot with subject matter experts, 
uh, because they know the law better than I do. So they test me on that. I like to uh, do a moot with uh, junior counsel who know the record to test my knowledge of the record. And I like to do a moot with experienced Supreme Court litigators uh, because they will be mean. And it's really the mean moot that you need because you, you have to, when you're on your feet, um, you have to be ready for the questions. Um, like I describe it as, you know, the, the mean moot gets you ready for your ad libs. Uh, you can practice your ad libs because you've heard the question before or you've heard worse. So that's the way we go about it. There isn't, there's no textbook on that. Uh, that's what we do at the Supreme Court level. We didn't do that at Hmong. Um, I was told that the Hmong team had hired a panel to moot all of their submissions. Uh, we didn't have the time or the resources for that. Uh, they out-resourced us in that case. So um, when we started doing moots, uh, there was a lot of pushback. No one liked to do moots in front of their colleagues. They don't mind being embarrassed in judges, but being embarrassed in front of your colleagues, that's a really bad thing. Uh, eventually everyone bought in and, it, and, and people started doing moots in any big case. So uh, I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, as I was saying to Paul and Mark before, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. I think we've got time for one last question and we'll go to the online folks. Um, is there any particular process uh, and or set of principles that you followed when preparing a media release regarding the position of the Crown in an ongoing piece of litigation? Okay, yes. Uh, so it had to be comprehensible was my bottom line, which, uh, meant I was rewriting all sorts of uh, things. Uh, and it had to be very uh, specific. One of the things in government um, is uh, people get um, used to talking around things. And uh, when anyone asked me for a question, I tried to be responsive to the question that was asked. And there'd be a back and forth about Sort of moving it to talking around and eventually we'd get to a something that I could live with but if someone asks a question you're generally entitled to a direct answer in my view and how you just get yourself in trouble by talking around it especially if you try and do that with judges it doesn't work at all okay well I think we are uh, at the end of our time so I'm just going to um take this opportunity to thank you Rob, uh, for, for coming this all this way to Kingston to speak with us, uh, to give us the McCartan Page Bowman lecture. Um, it's been quite fascinating. I will just add that uh, your epitaph might say something like brief, but witty, but also guardian of the rule of law. Have a, a small token of appreciation, and Paul, you can come up and accept this as well.
go. Thanks so much. Thanks. Oh, are you a new speaker? Okay, thanks. That's very good. Thank you.